I'd like you to turn to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. And I've got, I've got something important to tell you this morning. It's something that you already know. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to repeat it, and then we're going to talk about why, why it's important, maybe more so than we think. Um, after we look at our text today, I, I, I pray and hope that you're going to think about this a little bit more deeply and a little bit more profoundly. So here it is. God is holy. God is holy. See, I told you you already knew that, right? Amen, you knew that. Amen? Okay. I want to try and show you this morning how holy God is. Now, it's impossible for us to fully understand, but I want to take a stab at this and maybe get you to think about him a little bit more uh, reverently, maybe a little bit deeper than we have in the past. Maybe you're kind of already there. That's all right. We're in Joshua 6. I want to show you something about the big picture here so that we can kind of put everything in context. And I want to share this with you. The journey of the Jews has a lesson in it for us. The overall journey has a lesson for us here this morning. Let me start out with this. They were captive in Egypt. Uh, Now, God sent them down there, but they were captive in Egypt for over 400 years. God delivered them out, but had given them a, a promise of a land, but didn't take them directly to the promised land. That's kind of important. He took them out to the wilderness. Now, we know from Deuteronomy chapter 8 that the reason for the wilderness is to teach dependence upon God. It's to learn complete dependence upon God. And that's what God teaches in giving them the manna. We need to understand there was no food out there. So if God didn't rain manna down upon his people in the wilderness, they would starve. So they depend on him. And while they're learning that day-to-day dependence, they receive the law. The law gives them the opportunity to learn about obedience. God teaches them dependence, then he's teaching them obedience. But notice God teaches them dependence first. He doesn't teach them the obedience first. He proves his faithfulness, then he teaches obedience, and we see that obedience rises up out of the blessing of manna. Obedience rises up out of blessing. So God eventually gets them to the banks of the Jordan. It's a long trip. But before they cross, God has another lesson to teach them. He wants to teach them consecration. He wants to teach them being set apart. He wants to teach them being a unique people, set apart for God's purposes. So on the other side of the Jordan is Canaan. They can see it. Canaan is the promised land. This is the land that God says that he's already given his people. But they have to cross the Jordan first. And there's even a little mini lesson in that because in crossing the Jordan, they have to totally depend on God to hold the waters back. So they're still learning dependence even as they learn consecration, even as they're trying to absorb this idea that the land belongs to them and they haven't even been there yet. Now, once they get to the other side, and this is what we found out in chapter 5, they found out that they, they have to be purified. They have to be made clean. They have to be marked, marked by God as belonging to him alone. Now, last week I told you something important. I told you that Canaan was a metaphor for heaven. Well, the whole journey of the Jews becomes a metaphor for our journey to heaven as believers. 
Every stop on the, the, journey, the Jew's journey is significant. Every stop is a metaphor for every stop that we have on our walk. Egypt, for instance, is a metaphor for sin. We see that in Scripture. It keeps on referring back to Egypt. It's always a metaphor for sin. Just as God delivered the Jews from Egypt, God delivers us from sin and promises to take us to heaven. But uh, we've talked about this before. He doesn't take us to heaven right away, just as he didn't take the Jews to Canaan right away. He leaves us here. Uh, he leaves us here so that we can learn from him. He feeds us manna. And the manna that he feeds us is the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every mouth that proceeds from uh, the word of, from the mouth of God. So uh, he, he teaches us manna. Uh, he, he gives us his word, and that teaches us to depend upon him. He gives us the spirit, which will help us obey the law so we can learn obedience. And, and eventually he consecrates us. He sets us apart for his purposes. We become messengers and examples. We become living examples of the gospel. And along the way, as we grow, as we mature in our faith, we become more and more purified, except we call it sanctification. We become sanctified. We become cleansed and marked so that we are prepared for heaven, and heaven is the land that God has already given us. So I wanted to take I, I wanted just to take the time to show that to you because without this understanding, without an understanding that we're talking about metaphors here that apply directly to us, I gotta tell you something. Joshua is gonna be a struggle for some folks if they don't see this. It's gonna be very difficult. We've been talking for the first five chapters about how difficult Joshua can be. Well, we are there. Without this understanding, we may struggle. This is what Joshua is called to do in chapter 6. is a very difficult thing. This is a vitally important chapter. The reason it's vitally important is the stage has been set. The people are set apart. They are purified. The land is theirs, but they're going to have to fight. And the things that we see in Joshua chapter 6 will set the tone for the remainder of the book of Joshua. It's all defined right here. They're going to teach us something vitally important about God. They're going to teach us something vitally important about ourselves. And that's what we've seen in every chapter. There's something we learn about ourselves and something even more important that we learn about God. So our sermon today is called, And the Walls Came, and there's a pause there. You can figure, fill it in from yourself. The walls came tumbling down. This is part six of our series, The Promise and the Land. Now, the chapter is divided up into four sections, four acts of grace. They're not going to sound like acts of grace, but I, I pray that when I'm done, you see the grace in each of these acts. Here they are. Commandments are given in verses 1 through 14. A conquest is made in 15 through 21. A clemency is awarded in 22 through 25. And a curse is pronounced in 26 through 27. I told you they weren't going to sound like acts of grace. So let's take a look at our first act of grace, the commandments are given. Most folks don't see commandments as a gift of grace, but they were, because without these commandments that Joshua is about to receive, Joshua's left out there on his own. He's left to his own devices. He has to try and figure out how to take the promised land all by himself. With them, Joshua has God's word to, to guide him. So this is important for us to see as well. 
So God has protected his people while they were crossing the Jordan. They've been obedient. He's cut off the manna because they are now living off the abundance of the promised land. And we see that in verse 1, that Jericho, as they near Jericho, was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. Now, the people in Jericho know that a battle's coming. They know that God has already given Joshua and the army victory over on the other side of the Jordan over some very powerful kings. And they know that they're next. And it justifiably terrifies them. I don't know that they had good reason to be terrified. Jericho was built on a hill. And because of the height of the hill and because of how heavily fortified the city was, it was easily defended. The inner city was walled. It's where the well-to-do people lived. But there was a wall around the rest of the city as well. There were two sets of walls defending Jericho, and the hill was relatively high. Now, Joshua, Joshua is a good and godly leader. He has learned not to go forward without God's blessing, without God's direction. He's learned that well. And God gives Joshua exactly what he needs. He gives them these commandments. And in chapter 2 through 5, the commandments are revealed in God's battle plan for Jericho. It's incredible. And it will take everything that God has taught Joshua and the army for them to carry this battle plan out. Here it is. You military folks, listen. First, God tells them he's already given them Jericho. Then he tells them how he's going to take it. And this is how it's going to happen. All the soldiers We're going to march around the city once a day for six days. They're going to do that for six days. Just walk around the city. They're going to carry the ark with them. They're going to have seven priests with seven shofars. It's what a shofar looks like right here. They're big. They make a lot of noise. I'd blow it for you, but I'm afraid I'll mess it up. Okay? Seven priests, seven horns, seven shofars. They're going to go along on day seven. By the way, they're going to have the Ark of the Covenant with them. That's going to be with them. On day seven, they're going to march around the city seven times. And then the priests are going to blow the shofar one final time. And all the soldiers are going to shout when they blow the shofar. And then the walls are going to fall down. And once the walls fall down, the soldiers are going to run into the city and take it over. Quite a battle plan, isn't it? I ask you military guys to listen carefully. Let me ask you something. You've been in the military. Would you ever come up with a battle plan like that? Would you say, here's our strategy. We're going to march around in circles for six days. Then we're going to march around in circles for one more day a bunch of times. And then we're all going to shout. Let me ask you something else. If that wasn't your battle plan, if you were a foot soldier and the general came and said, this is what we're going to do, guys. How would you feel about that? Would you ever want to go into battle with a plan like this? Listen carefully. This is a test. This is a test for Joshua. He's been obedient in everything God has asked him to do until now. And let me tell you why it's a test. Because Joshua's a warrior. He knows what warfare is. He's been out there fighting and he's used his sword. He knows what works and what doesn't. And now God is asking Joshua to do something that doesn't look as though it has much of a chance of working. What's going on here? 
Well, as I mentioned last week, God doesn't always explain himself to us, does he? He doesn't always explain himself to his prophets. He never asks Joshua what he thinks of the plan. All God wants from Joshua is obedience. All he wants Joshua to do is just do what he tells him to do and to trust him. I think at times God's word can present that type of challenge to us. God's word does not always appeal to our sensibilities. And frequently, as we're learning about in our Apollos class right now, Apollos 12, it challenges things that we've been taught. It challenges things that we have always believed to be correct, but we've never really verified. It challenges things we always believe to be true. And just because we've kind of thought them through and they make sense to us. Joshua is facing that challenge right here in chapter 6. And we find out how he's going to react in verses 6 and 7. Joshua's heard the commandments of God. He obeys. He simply obeys. Notice this. Joshua obeys without question, without comment. He doesn't go back to the Lord and go, I don't know about this plan, God. I've never seen anything like this before. Am I sure I heard you right that you want me to walk around in circles for a couple days and then do it more? He sends his soldiers out without comment. He sends them out as God instructed, walking around the city once a day for six days. Now, the perimeter of the city was about 1,800 feet. Just about, it would take just as long to walk around Jericho as it would for us to go walk around Hospital Hill. Army would take about a half hour, maybe 45 minutes or so to walk around it. Priests are blowing the shofars. Soldiers walking in silence. They're not allowed to say anything. I mean, you can almost feel the tension in this. These are warriors. They've got their armor on. They've got their shields. They've got their spears. They've got their bows and arrows. They're ready to fight, and they have to walk in silence, and they're just waiting for that seventh day. Let us know when we can do it. Let us know. <laughs> That's bad enough, but can you imagine what this looked like to the people of Jericho who are expecting a fight? You can see them standing on the walls going, what are they doing? Who fights a war like this? To them, it makes even less sense than perhaps than it does to Joshua. Listen, church, sometimes obedience to God's word is not going to make sense to the world. They will ridicule us. They will say nasty things to us. We're out here trying to be obedient. They're going to go, oh, I can't believe you believe that. That's a myth. That's too old. That's too old-fashioned. You can't believe something somebody wrote 2,000 years ago. You're using your faith as a crutch. How do you get through life like that? Somebody told me that a couple months ago. I said, at least a man with a crutch knows he needs help. The world has a better way. The world has a way that appeals to the world's sensibilities. One that doesn't require faith and trust. You realize God has just asked Joshua to trust him implicitly with his entire army. Now here, in, in, in a scenario in Jericho, if, if, you know, it, it might not seem to make sense, but if we back up again and look at the big picture, we be, can begin to get a peek at what God's doing. He, he just had the Jews pause 
on the West Bank. He had them stop before they fight and mark themselves as belonging to him. It's a scriptural principle. We see that God marks things. He had his people mark themselves. God marks those things that are exclusively his. He sets them apart. He makes them unique so that they will give him glory when and how he uses them. See, that's what God is doing to Jericho. He's marking it. He's setting it aside so that when he uses it, whichever way he decides to use it, it will be for his glory. If you look at all the elements of the big story here, you see the seven priests and the seven ram's horns. They, they have their own particular type of mark. They are the royal priesthood, the holy priesthood. The horns are the proclamation of the word of God. And the ark, which goes along with them there, the ark represents the throne of God. It means that God is with them. Remember the commander of the Lord's army from chapter 5? God is with them. What we're watching in verses 8 through 14 of this passage is the beginning, brothers and sisters, of a holy war. It's the first battle in the holy war to occupy the promised land. A war whose end is already determined. And how do we know that it's already determined? Take a look at the number of times the number seven appears in this passage. It's all over the place. You'll see that the number seven dominates the battle plan. To the Jews, and if we understand Scripture, we know that the number seven is the number of perfection. Amen? The plan, what God is saying in this, is that the plan that he's offered Joshua is perfect. It will indeed produce the results that God says it will produce. Joshua follows that perfect plan. So the commandments are part of that perfect plan that will lead to the fulfillment of God's promise of land to his people. The commandments are a guideline given to the people that would be left to their own devices without any other guidelines. The commandments are a gift of grace. Without them, Joshua and the army are on their own. Commandments is grace. We need to think of the Old Testament law as a gift of grace. Do you understand what I'm saying? The commandments that Joshua received are a gift of grace. It's how you're going to win the battle. If you just listen to me, everything's going to be okay. The law is not something that's supposed to be an albatross around our neck. The law is our guidelines for walking in God's grace. God is saying, here are the rules. If you walk in them, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you're going to have a hard time. Commandments is a gift of grace. New way of thinking about commandments, isn't it? Next action of grace is the conquest. We see that in 15 through 21. Absolutely brutal. The army walks around the city seven times on the seventh day. The horns are blown. Joshua commands the army to shout. And in verse 17, we see something that that is vital to our understanding of the book of Joshua. It's there in the first half of 17, 17a we call it. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Huh. Most folks don't equate the Lord with destruction. Most folks are very comfortable with the Lord who creates, but not so comfortable with the Lord who destroys. Yet we have right here a city devoted to the Lord for destruction. 
The Hebrew word for devoted here is, is harem. It means to set aside for destruction. That's a simple definition. But if you go a little bit deeper, you find out that it denotes complete destruction. And the word is, is frequently related to, listen, the word is frequently related to how they deal with disease. They burn everything that comes in contact with disease. It's related to how they deal with the plague. Everything that comes in contact with the plague is burned by fire. God instructs Joshua to destroy everything and everyone in Jericho as if they were a plague. Everyone except in the second half of 17, only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. And we'll come back to Rahab in a moment. But I want you to see that this is the first in a series of contrasts that are set up. The city is to be destroyed. Rahab is to be spared. Now, that is followed by a warning, which will prove to be vital to understand in the next chapter when we look at I. So this warning is significant. Verse 18, But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Just highlight that in your Bible because we're going to be talking about it when we go to chapter 7. They can bring things made out of precious metal back, but those go directly into the treasury and the tabernacle. Everything else has to be destroyed. They are not to take anything for their personal use or benefit. Verse 20, so the people shouted and the, the trumpets were blown and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. You know, this story's so familiar, I, I don't know that the impact of it hits us, but look, they obeyed God. And he delivers this, this spectacular sight. They shout, and the walls fall down. Now that's pretty stupendous, amen? It's even better than you think. Let me explain. The most dangerous part of, of a, the siege on a city occurs uh, when the invading army climbs the hill that a city's built on. Most cities were built on a hill because they were easier to defend. They're exposed... They're subject to attack from above. And the most dangerous part of that climb to the city is when they encounter the city walls, when the invaders get to the city walls. Inevitably, casualties are numerous. They could lose their whole army right there at the base of the city walls. That's why Jericho has two sets of walls. You remember? Jericho has two sets of walls, an inner wall and an outer wall. The original wall, the inner wall, it protected the city when it was small. As the city grew, people began living on the outside because there's no more room left inside. After a while, there were so many people living outside, uh, their position outside the walls became a threat. It was easy to infiltrate that position. It was easy for an army to sneak in there and attack the city without, uh, without them knowing that it was coming. So they built an outer wall to protect those people as well. Now, that... Well, let me show you. Here's a slide of what the walls look like. Okay? They, they were formidable. Uh, each set of walls was 25 to 30 feet high. They were 6 to 12 feet thick. 
The outer wall was built on a retaining wall that made it even higher, even harder to get to. There was the, that retaining wall made more distance between the ground and the bottom of the wall. This is what protected Jericho for almost a thousand years. The space between the lower wall and the upper wall was filled with dirt, and then that, that area was used, it was developed. Listen, archaeological evidence shows us that when the trumpets sounded and the shouts arose, the lower wall fell outward of the city. Now, it was designed to fall inward, but it fell outward, and it filled that space between the ground and the retaining wall, making a little bit of an entry there. The, the upper walls fell inward. Okay, You've got to get the picture for this. The text says that they fell down flat, and the result of the way the walls fell was an easy entrance into the city. All the army had to do was run up the hill and attack the city from all sides. Each man straight before him is what the text says. God gave them the victory, and the conquest was absolutely devastating, but the way that the victory occurred, it, it happened in such a manner that the army could do nothing other than kneel down and thank God for the victory because he made miracles happen right there in that moment. You know, the whole region, we know from the, the, the whole thing about Gilgal, is that the whole region was subject to earthquakes. Well, uh, and, and there are people who will read this and go, well, it was just an earthquake that knocked down the walls. Well, what a coincidence. <laughs> either, either the shout started the earthquake or God knew something was going to happen at that particular moment because that's when he had him shout. So you can package that any way you want. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. God gave them the victory. The victory was a gift. It was an act of grace. The conquest is an act of grace. Then in verse 21, then they devoted all in the city to destruction. Both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Now in the Hebrew, it's kind of like everybody dies by the edge of the sword, even the animals. Devastating for everyone but, everyone but Rahab and her family. And that brings us to our next act of grace is clemency, clemency. Verse 22 and 23, Rahab and all of her family received clemency. They are spared from almost unimaginable destruction. Now, notice this. Rahab and her family were told to stay where? In their house. Where was their house from chapter 5? It's in the wall. So, not all the walls fell down. You want to see a picture of God's grace. It's that area of wall that remained standing where Rahab and her family were. If they'd come out of the house, they'd die with everybody else, but God doesn't knock their house down so that they can be obedient to what they've been told by the army so that the, the family will be preserved. It's another sign of the grace of God. The rest of the city does not fare so well. Verse 24, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Again, as I read this, I've been soaking in this for a long time. I've got to tell you, it still sounds to me that this is pretty harsh. Doesn't it sound harsh? Why? Why is God so insistent on this level of pain and grief. 
Well, I'll tell you, part of the answer is there in the structure of the second half of the chapter. If you just glance over uh, everything from 17 through the end of the chapter, you'll see those contrasts I talked about a little bit earlier between Rahab and Jericho. In verse 17a, the city's devoted to destruction. In 17b, Rahab is spared. In verse 21, the city is destroyed. But in verse 22, Rahab and her family are spared. In verse 23, we see it again. Only now Rahab comes first. Rahab is spared, but in verse 24, the city is burned to complete destruction. Do you see the tension there? The tension between Rahab and Jericho? Here's that tension in a nutshell. Amid all these acts of grace that we've seen, and we haven't seen all of them yet, there's still one more, but even as we watch God act in grace, we see one live and one die. Rahab lives, Jericho dies. Don't miss this. Rahab, who has been marked by God as good, lives, and Jericho, who is marked as evil, dies. We see a tension between good and and evil, and evil loses this confrontation in a spectacular fashion. But why does it have to be so brutal? I'll give you three lessons, three reasons why it, it's this brutal. Here's the first one. Jericho is the very first battle for the promised land, the very first engagement. When God gave his people the law back in Exodus, back in Leviticus. He gave them guidelines for offerings and sacrifices as well. You can go take a look at those. They're kind of interesting to walk through. Among those guidelines was a directive to make a sacrifice of the first fruits of their labors and livestock. It was called a first fruit offering. Beloved, Jericho is the first fruit of the promised land. Jericho is a sacrifice to the Lord. Jericho, devoted to destruction, just like his sacrifices were. Jericho is a sacrifice to the Lord that points towards his holiness. We'll get into that a little bit more in a minute as well. The second reason is this. Do you remember, back from chapter 5, the commander of the army of the Lord appears to Joshua, and Joshua wants to know what side he's on? And the commander of the army of the Lord says, I'm not on anyone's side. As a matter of fact, I'm here to tell you, you're on our side. You are on God's side. God's not on your side. You're on God's side. There's a significant difference here. So Joshua is on God's side. And the good news about that is he's not there by himself. He doesn't have to devise this win. As a matter of fact, all he has to do is what God tells him to do, and the victory's there. And, and, and what we should see in that is that this is God's battle. It is God's battle for God's purposes, not Joshua's. God doesn't owe us an explanation as to why he does things the way he does them. Graciously, it's rolling out in the chapter here, but it is God's battle, not Joshua's. It is not Joshua who's being a warmonger here. It's Joshua who's being obedient. Now, that dovetails very nicely into our third reason why this is so brutal, and this is why I spent time earlier detailing the journey. Remember, God delivered the Jews out of Egypt. Egypt is a metaphor for sin. 
He taught them dependence on Him, manna. Manna is a metaphor for the Word. He taught them obedience to the law, but they need the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to even think about that. He consecrated them, a metaphor for being set apart. He purified them, a metaphor for being sanctified, and He promised them a land, and the land is a metaphor for heaven. Now, if you follow that journey, then you'll see that here they are. They have entered the promised land, a people purified, set apart for the purposes of the Lord, called to be holy, called to live in a land that is holy. We call it the Holy Land so often, I think we forget that it's holy. Called to live in a land that is holy. Neither the people nor the land are to be defiled. Why not? Because they're metaphors for us. They're metaphors for the church and for heaven. And one day when the church is in heaven, it will be pure and holy. And heaven will be holy. So as Joshua and his army move into Canaan, the metaphor for heaven, God wants them to ruthlessly eradicate everything that is not holy. He wants them to eliminate everything that is not marked as being set apart and sanctified to the Lord. He wants them to remove everything that is unholy. And they do. Everything except Rahab and her family who have been marked by a crimson cord. See, everything that's unholy is sinful. Everything that is unholy is sinful. You see what's happening? God is ordering Joshua to eliminate all that is sinful from Canaan. The people of Canaan are sinful. They've rejected the one true God. We'll find that out in chapter 20 where it says they resist Him. They're sinful. And what is the penalty for sin? Death. Death. God is giving us this graphic example of the pain of death. And on the way, he shows us how incredibly brutal sin can be to a people, how incredibly brutal sin can be in our lives. It can devastate us. It can annihilate us. It can wipe us from the face of the earth. Anyone thinks this is brutal? Keep in mind that these are metaphors. Jericho is only a metaphor for heaven and the holiness of God. It's an imperfect metaphor of the perfect purity of heaven. You think this is brutal. Consider the reality of what it will be like for those who reject God and burn in hell forever. A statement of faith says they suffer in eternal conscious torment. The cost of opposing God is to be thrown into the lake of fire. God wants his people to fully understand the consequences of sin. So he sends Joshua into Jericho with a sword to show them. And for us to sit here 2,000 years later and see it. And we extend that metaphor into our personal lives for those of us who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, called upon him. We see that we too are called to ruthlessly eradicate sin from our lives. To avoid treating it casually. To avoid approaching it flippantly. 
by, by repenting for our sins, by receiving God's mark, by calling Jesus Christ our Lord, our Savior, by turning from our sinful ways and towards His righteousness, and by, in doing that, by avoiding God's sword and eternal destruction. So, so why is it so brutal? Well, because Jericho is the first fruit of the promised land. Uh, because it is God's battle. And because God is holy, people. God is holy. God is pure. He is perfect. And He will not tolerate anything unholy. It will be destroyed and removed from His kingdom and eliminated from among His people. God is so completely holy that all those who are not marked as holy and belonging to Him are doomed. That's what we're going to see as we continue to move through Joshua. That sets the tone for the rest of Joshua. We're going to watch 31 cities fall in, in a similar fashion. God's uncompromising holiness. Along the way, we'll see His mercy. We'll see His grace because He's at His well. We saw it today. We watched Him shed His unmerited favor on Joshua, on the army, on Rahab, on her family. We saw that. And you know what? And there's one more act of grace that we haven't seen. This is going to be another challenge. The curse. The curse as an act of grace. Found in verse 26 where the curse is pronounced. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. Now, if you travel to Jericho today, you'll see a couple things. Number one, uh, there are two Jerichos. There's the ancient city, which I'm going to show you, and there's the modern city, which is about a mile and a half, two miles down the road. So in the Gospels, you hear Jesus leaving Jericho and, and, uh, and healing a, a, uh, a lame man. Uh, in one Gospel, another Gospel, you see him entering Jericho and healing the same guy, okay? He's, he's moving between the two Jerichos. Both, both books are accurate, okay? So, if you go to the ancient site of Jericho, here's what you see. Cool fountain, palm trees. It's nice, it's pleasant. Uh, they claim this is Elisha's spring. Um, it probably is. Uh, there's a parking lot there. There's benches you can sit on. Uh, there's, uh, of course, there's a huge uh, gift shop. There's a restaurant called Temptations. <laughs> the reason it's called Temptations is immediately to the north of this site uh, is the Greek Orthodox traditional location of the Mount of Temptation. That's what it looks like right there. That's standing from in, in front of that spring. So, we went into the site and once you get past that reception area, this is what it looks like. It, it, is, it is barren. There's nothing there. You can dig down a little bit. You can actually see the burn layer where, where Jericho was burned. And we walked onto that site, and we sat there in the noonday sun. It was about 110 degrees. Um, our teacher was trying to teach us something. He kept on saying, remember the fires of hell are much hotter than this. Uh, and we read, 
we read those words aloud. Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. When we reflected upon the holiness of God, and see, the, the, the evidence of the holiness of God was right there in front of us. We reflected about how holy he is. And it was at that moment, just looking at the, the ruins, looking at the devastation of an ancient town called Jericho, that I realized that God is far more holy than I can imagine. There were 26 of us standing there, and I'm going to tell you something, we were all standing there in the heat, some were sitting down, but it, 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 was, it was just as if God moved powerfully in that moment. We all went down on our knees. And it's a humbling thing when you see how holy God is and how much you lack that holiness. And we probably spent 10 minutes there, and as I rose up, I got to tell you, the first thing I thought is I got to go home and tell our folks about this. I got to try and explain how holy God is. I got to try and convey the idea that I'm never going to be able to convey adequately enough to tell you how holy God is. And as you contemplate that holiness, I pray that it drives you to your knees as well. So I look at the evidence of God's holiness that he left barren for all this time and I see that barrenness as his gift of grace to remind us of the consequences of sin. And I realize that the only answer to any of it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way to avoid that barrenness in our lives is in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone. Repent from our sins, turn away from our sinful ways and towards his righteousness and experience the abundance of the land that we've already been given.